pleasure to be speaking to you this evening. If you've got a Bible, please turn it to Luke chapter 9. I've been in the task of talking about the cost of discipleship. It's a topic which is uh, really close to my heart and uh, yeah, it should be fun. And one of the sorts of things we're going to be looking at are the revelation of Jesus' identity, which leads to his revelation of his purpose, what he's come to do, and that leads these two things in common then lead us to understand our own discipleship. It's going to be good. So, if you've got it open, Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. What about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the Holy Angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There are no windows. Your cell is really small. You can't move around much. You wouldn't know if the sun was rising or if it was setting. You wouldn't know what time it was. They'd give you bread twice a day, two slices in the morning, two in the evening. This is life in prison. These are words from um, Pastor Gideon. He's a Christian in Eritrea, Africa. He spent over six years locked up being a Christian. Gideon was beaten, interrogated, forced into manual labor, all to pressure him to deny Christ. But even as he was in prison, Gideon held on to his faith in God. And he goes on to say in this interview, Even when we were in suffering, we rejoiced. Our happiness is not based on what we have or do not have. When people see that, they accept Jesus. And then once uh, Pastor Gideon was free, he went back to his work as a pastor. And he said the church has continued to develop leaders and disciples. Those who aren't afraid of jails or of death. That is the kind of generation the church has produced. What makes us happy is that more than ever, the gospel is spreading glory to God. It's a wonderful story. And Pastor Gideon knows how costly it can be to follow Jesus. He knows that personally for himself, and then when he goes back into his church, he tells people plainly, this is the cost of following Jesus in this place. But despite the high, high, high cost, the church is growing. Thousands are coming to know Jesus. They're counting the cost, and they're concluding he's worth it. Now I'll tell you this, not to glamorise the persecuted church. I 
Because actually, most of the time, the person you to church are facing much smaller, less dramatic, daily persecutions of people just trying to stall the kingdom of God. As we come to Luke 9, I just want those words of Pastor Kingdom and the stories coming from the persecuted church to ring in our ears. Because although, you know, we don't face the threat of death of being a Christian in this country, I don't want us to slip into the idea that it's all too common in Boston Church that discipleship costs nothing. For Pastor Gideon and millions and millions of Christians around the world, they do face the threat of death and persecution for following Jesus. And as I say, after counting the cost, they're being prepared to pay it because the God they worship is worth it. So maybe we just humble ourselves before their example this evening. Let's turn to Luke 9. So far in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus and his followers have been causing quite a stir. His teachings, his miracles, his wondrous things, the news of it is spreading far and wide. Great crowds are gathering just to get a glimpse of this great teacher. His renown is reaching the ears of the great Herod, if you look at chapter 9, verse 7. And Herod is terrified because word is reaching him. That some are claiming that this man is John the Baptist. And Harry's telling us something. I killed John the Baptist. I beheaded him. Is he back from the dead? This, this question of who is this man is running through this text. And that's the scene before us at verse 18. Once Jesus has heard the same consensus from the crowds through his disciples, he then poses the question back to them. Okay, so, you know, that's, that's who they say, say I am, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Makes you think, doesn't it? What would be the answer to that question today? The great crowds of the great Christian country of the UK. Who do they think that Jesus is today? A report in 2015 actually asked this question. I've got some stats. I'm not really a data person, but hey. 29% they said that Jesus was a prophet. 40% of the battles. Um, either don't believe or aren't sure that Jesus was even a real person. And then 22% thought that he was fictional. And then fascinatingly, actually, a fifth of adults in the UK, 20% of adults in the UK, believe Jesus was God in human form. I was shocked by how high that was. Because I'm going to suggest that actually the most important question we can ever ask in our lives is, who is Jesus? And... What difference does knowing that make in our life? Because just like the crowds in the passage of the population of the UK today, many of us have an idea of who we think Jesus was or is. But I'm going to suggest tonight that actually many of us do not actually sit with the second half of that question for long enough. What difference does that make to my life? Because if one fifth of Brits say that Jesus is the Son of the Living God, where's revival? Well, quite simply, they don't think that knowing that Jesus is the Son of the Living God, they don't think that that should cause any change in their life. Perhaps even those of us who call ourselves Christians fall into the same trap. That's what this passage challenges. Verse 20. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter pipes up, God's Messiah. And he got it, he smashed it. Finally, these disciples are catching on. The man before them is the promised Messiah, the one who they have been waiting for, the one who's going to set them free, the one that the prophets have been pointing to 
Peter started to catch on. He looks at Jesus and goes, I am God's Messiah. But in the Gospel of Luke, the declaration of Jesus' identity by Peter is kind of tarnished with this, like, well, yeah, duh. Because if you look over the page at chapter 8, verse 28, you will realise that Jesus' identity has actually been revealed. Look down, chapter 8, 28, it says, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Who's that coming from? Well, a demon. They know full well who Jesus is. Isn't that curious? I mean, in the Gospel of Luke, these accounts are put right next to each other, both with the declaration of Jesus' true identity as God's Messiah and the Son of the living God. What does this tell us? Well, it tells us that knowing Jesus' identity means nothing if you do not respond with admiration and affection and glorification of that identity through our actions. Because if King Charles walked through these doors right now, and I know that he's the king, if he enters the room, I do not demonstrate that adoration of his kingship. He's not walking through the door, I know it's he's not looking. Um, if he comes through the door, and I know he's the king, but I don't bow, do I really know that he's the king? Because James picks up with this in his epistle. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that there is a God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. <laughs> At least they shudder in fear at the identity of God, because it seems that one fifth of the UK, who know these two, just crack on with their pleasant lives. The knowledge of Jesus' identity is not causing any change in their lives. Who is Jesus? What difference does that make to my life? So we can see um, that Peter is catching on. He reveals that identity, verse 22. Uh, first, 19, I think. Yeah, then it goes on. Verse 22. Jesus goes on to explain what identity means. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. He's saying, Yeah, I'm God's Messiah, don't turn on yet, but I'm God's Messiah, I've come to save the world. Does it look like that? I think it's going to look. It means actually, I need to die. I need to lay my life down for the world. It means dying on the cross. And did you notice, look down at verse 22, what it doesn't say. Because it doesn't say, the Son of Man may suffer, the Son of Man might suffer, or could suffer. It says, the Son of Man must suffer, must die and be raised in your life. Then in light of Jesus' identity as God's Messiah, the Son of the living God, in light of all that identity truly means, in light of those two monumental things, this is what it means for us. Jesus goes on to say, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. There's a pattern, if you notice it. Identity, and then what that identity means in action. Jesus' identity is that He's the Son of Man, the Son of, the, uh, the Son of Man, the promised Messiah. And then he goes on to his purpose, he must suffer many things, etc. So to we get our identity, and we're told that we are disciples, and then we're told what that means. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Identity, purpose, identity, purpose. Intrinsically linked. You cannot have one without the other. Actually, I've been thinking about this. I don't really know what the answer is, but it's a good question. Would Jesus truly be God's Messiah if he didn't die and rise again? Would 
disciples if we weren't prepared to face what that means for us too. So we are his disciples, Christians, Christians. That's our identity and that leads us to follow Jesus. In society today, we don't really have a concept of what following someone means, unless you're a stalker, which I hope you're not. And um, <laughs> around the world, there seems to be misconception about what that word true means. A misconception around this following word can lead to two really different looking Christianities. Because the understanding of following Jesus can lead past Gideon to the conviction that no matter what, he will stand true and hold firm to Jesus. Then others who call themselves Christians have this understanding that following Jesus kind of means nothing changes. I think it's around this word. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Many leaders and pastors in the West today, uh, in the name of trying to make Jesus modern, have this ridiculous idea that following Jesus is like following someone on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. And I think this is extremely disturbing and frankly quite ridiculous because it takes the Son of the Living God, his call to follow him and devote our lives to him, it takes all this and distills it down into a small segment of our lives. Just how if I pop onto Instagram, I can check out what friends are doing. It's the same with this wrong idea of following Jesus. This idea puts Jesus into a little one hour, 30 minute slot, on Sunday morning or Sunday evening, and a one hour slot on Wednesday, when Christians just go and check in with Jesus, check in with this Jesus segment of their lives, just to make sure he's still there. Now, this segmentation of Jesus in our lives, it kills discipleship. Because true discipleship, true following of Jesus, does not have Jesus as a segment of our lives like an orange or satsuma, but it puts Jesus right in the middle, from which everything grows and is defined. So how long to look at true discipleship? I think the best way to think about it in this modern world is to think of it like apprenticing under Jesus. Now this, uh, this analogy comes from the late great Dallas Willard, um, and it's a great analogy because it communicates the taking on of everything about the master for ourselves. Over the Christmas holidays, um, Ellie and I had a little bit of a flood. Um, I mean, it was on Christmas Eve of all the days where there was water literally pouring down the walls of our, uh, of our house. It was awful. But the good thing was, um, I got to get close enough access to looking at what it's like to be uh, a plumber. It was really interesting. And this is kind of a way to think about apprenticing under Jesus. Because apprentice, the apprentice's name, his name's Dan, lovely chap, he was learning the trade of the plumber. So he had a master that he was following every day, carefully looking at all the master did. But not just watching from a distance, he was actually getting hands on with what was going on. Getting his hands on practicing the skills, mimicking how his master did things, how his master interacted with us as customers, how many sugars he had in his tea, all those sorts of things. And we as Christians are called to apprentice under Jesus. In the same way, to listen to him, watch how he does things, practice the skills, interact with others like he does. And from this passage, we see it includes humbling ourselves before the master, self-denying ourselves. It includes an act of learning from his ways, and it includes practically getting involved in what he's doing. See, apprentices of Jesus learn on their own, 
journeying with their master. This is what it was to follow Jesus back then. This is what it is to follow Jesus now. It hasn't changed. So apprentices of Jesus must deny themselves, take their cross daily, and follow me. Notice what comes first as well. Our identity comes first, but our identity is linked with what we are to do, who we are to be in relationship to Jesus. So we should just read these words and quickly fit them into our one segmented view of discipleship, saying, I see you know, the denying ourselves a bit, Jesus. Like, I see the cross bit, but I think what you actually mean is to be a disciple, we just chat to my neighbors once, um, once a day. Or I think, you know, actually, Jesus, what I think you mean is to be a disciple, we come to church for an hour and sing a few songs. Or I think, Jesus, what you actually mean is to be a disciple, we pray a prayer one time and change absolutely nothing in our lives. No. Enough of defining discipleship on our own terms. Enough of trying to twist discipleship to be something that costs us nothing. Enough of keeping Jesus in this Sunday-sized box, just on a shelf, and take that out with him. Enough of this. Let the Son of the Living God define what his discipleship do. But down with me at verse 23. Because we see this laid out for us. True apprentices of Jesus deny themselves completely are prepared and expect to suffer daily, perhaps even to death, and then they serve and follow him by attributing all the worth and praise to him, by trusting his word, by following his teaching and being obedient to his call. Jim Wallace said, the great tra tragedy of modern evangelism is in calling many to belief, but few to obedience. The great tragedy of modern evangelism is in calling many to belief but few to obedience. You see, if we are prepared to suffer with and for Jesus, no matter the cost, why should we expect to receive the gain? Because Jesus is so clear. Discipleship, apprenticeship under him includes being like him, doing what he did, Going where he goes, even to the cross. Because like him, we'll be rejected by our parents and our family. Like him, we'll suffer in many, many different ways. Like him, we'll go through many different trials. Like him, like millions of Christians over the ages, we may even lose our lives. But, like him, will be called children of God. Like him, we'll rise to new life in glory. Like him, we'll live a life empowered by the Spirit, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Like him, we'll live a life devoted to prayer. Like him, we'll live a life of peace with our Father. Like him, we will live in perfect, eternal union. It's this truth of the gospel that gave Pastor Gideon hope when he was being tortured for his faith. It's this truth that gives hope to the thousands who meet in secret around the world just so that they're not killed for their faith. It's this gospel that led Paul to say in Romans 8, I consider that our present suffering are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There is no comparing. The cost and the aim for the gain is so, so ridiculously lavish. You see, following Jesus is painful. It does cost a lot, but he is so worth it. 
God lost, and we see that in Jesus we receive glorious riches of His grace. We step into a life of living a life of fullness, life now and forever. But before we do or say anything, we count the cost of what it truly means to follow Jesus. And He's upfront with this. He doesn't, you know, go to Him and say, "Can I follow you?" He doesn't go, "Yeah, sure, why not?" He goes, "Have you counted the cost?" Multiple stories within the New Testament of Jesus going, hang on a second, wait, it might cost you your life, it might cost you the thing you're not willing to let go of. I need you to know, up front, what it costs to follow me. Self-denial, suffering and service, this is the cost of following Christ. And are you willing to pay? Or... Are you trying to gain the benefits of the kingdom of this world whilst also trying to claim the benefits of the kingdom of God? Are you trying to follow Jesus without it costing you a single thing? You see, in the light of all that there is to gain through Jesus, we embrace self-denial. We delight in our sufferings. And we devote ourselves to the service of Christ, for He is so worth it.